Hey, everybody. This is Brian Zond. Welcome to my sermon podcast. Before we get into the sermon, though, I want to tell you about an online class coming up in November when everything's on fire. This is a class designed to help you navigate the pressure that sometimes comes upon you in the modern age trying to sustain Christian faith. I really think I can help you in that process. And so here's what it's going to be. Monday nights in November, the live classes are from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Central. I'll present for about an hour, and then we'll have 30 minutes of Q&A. But you don't have to participate in the live classroom to uh, be a part of this. You can uh, access the recordings with a donation of any amount. So a donation of any amount gets you into the class. And uh, if you need more information or you're ready to register, go to wolc.com slash fire for the When Everything's on Fire online class in November. Good morning. You know, I don't often do this, but I told the staff, you know, they begged. And I'm particularly vulnerable to being begged. (laughs) I'd rather talk to you one-on-one, but I do think that I have something from the Lord today. Amen. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the beautiful time we had of worshiping together. Lord, be with me as I impart the word of the Lord to the people today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to go with a text. Tell, I'm going to tell two Old Testament stories, starting with a story from Genesis 28.10. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. Okay, who's Jacob? Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. He is one of the set of twins that was born to Isaac and Rebekah. He's destined to become Israel, but right now he's a conniving, lying, opportunistic mama's boy. In other words, a brat that never grew up. So if God can do something with Jacob, he can do something with all of us. Amen. Amen. He's over 40 years old when this story takes place. I learned that in uh, Genesis 26-34. So he has now robbed his brother of his birthright. He's robbed his brother of the blessing of the firstborn. He has finally pushed too far, and his brother seriously, seriously wants to kill him. This is a fully dysfunctional family. Would fit right into the 21st century, right? (laughs) Mama has warned him that he needs to run for his life and stay away for a long time. He's essentially been banished from his home. He's on a journey, a physical journey, that becomes a spiritual journey. And so the story continues. He came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. He had a dream. And behold, listen to this dream. A ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven And behold, 
the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. Was that an incredible dream? Would you love to hear, have that dream yourself? And it goes on and tells that the Lord spoke to him. And in then verse 16, and then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I wasn't even aware of it. He was afraid. Now, you all just said you wanted to have that dream, but look what happened. He was afraid. He was afraid, and he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And so Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he awoke to a new understanding of the presence of God. You know, he was asleep more than physically. He was asleep spiritually. But he woke to a new understanding of the presence of God, and he was afraid. Now, this word afraid, it's, it's important. The Bible talks often about the fear of the Lord, and this is the kind of fear that, that we mean when we talk about the fear of the Lord. This fear is to properly appreciate the Lord, to reverence the Lord, to be aware of God's presence and not just flippantly skip through life unafraid. So this, this fear is not a fear because God is mean or God is angry, but it's a fear that God is someone who should be taken very, very seriously. He said, how awesome is this place? That's another word that we have really let become something that it didn't start out to be. I mean, we say that everything's awesome. Oh, your new sweater is awesome. That ice cream was awesome. You know, so many things are awesome. And so we've kind of let that word fall into just, it just, it means everything. But awesome means to inspire a sense of Awe. I was awestruck. I was just blown away. That's what that word means. And so lucky for Jacob, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That fear of the Lord is a beginning of a, of an, a, it's a starting place, a place to go, a place to begin your spiritual journey. It was the beginning of his journey to becoming the patriarch of the nation of Israel. Cool, cool story, right? Okay, I'm going to read a second, package, second passage from 2 Kings, many centuries later, maybe 10 centuries later. It's a similar message, though. 2 Kings 6.14. One night, the king of Aram, that was the enemy, sent a great army with many chariots and horses to surround the city. And when the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops and horses and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Now, Elisha was the prophet of Israel at this time. And um, Elisha said, don't be afraid, for there are more on our side than on theirs. Then Elisha prayed, O oh Lord, open his eyes and let him see. 
open his eyes. And the Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. And he was greatly encouraged. And the story goes on to tell, you think, oh, it tells how they vanquished their enemies and wiped them out. No, this is a really cool story because they ended up taking them all as prisoners of war. And they took them to the capital city and they were in a position where they could kill them all. And they said, what shall we do? They asked Elisha, what shall we do? Shall we kill them all? He said, of course not. We don't kill prisoners of war. Feed them. Give them something to drink and let them go. Isn't that beautiful? It's not the way that you uh, thought the story was going to end. But just the idea, though, that what I want you to get from the passage is the idea of how this young man's eyes were opened and he was able to see into the spirit world something that he hadn't seen before. So these two stories, the story of Jacob and the story of Elisha's servant, they're, they're similar stories. People waking up to see what they hadn't previously seen, things that had been hidden. Now Jacob hadn't yet had his own experience with God. He was just Abraham's grandson. He was Isaiah and Rebekah's boy. Elisha's servant was a young man who didn't have Elisha's experience. Well, I love both of these stories. They are trying to show us the reality of another world, another world that is going on all around us, the spiritual world that is more real than the world we currently see. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? Well, a huge part of the task of this life is to, to develop those eyes to see, to develop our eyes of faith, to become fully human, perfected, mature children of God. Now, I love uh, Irenaeus. Irenaeus was a second century church father, and he said this. Think about it. He said, God wanted to give human beings their fullness right from the beginning, but they were incapable of receiving it because they were still little children. You know, we are all born as little children, and we need to grow up and mature, but not only physically. We need our spirit man to, to mature. And there are a lot of people walking around on the earth today who may be physically adults, but they haven't had any kind of spiritual um, development. They've not become the people that God created them to be. So just like we don't give little children the car keys <laughs> because they would hurt themselves. And I, I think it's one of the most beautiful images uh, to think of a parent trying to teach that young, um, that infant, that 12-month-old, that one-year-old to walk, and you're coaxing them to take those first few steps. But you can't make them do it. You can't do it for them. You have to just encourage and love. And that's God who's always encouraging and loving us into greater depths of maturity. But God can't do it for us. So... 
The New Testament says, 2 Corinthians 4.18, I just put up all the scriptures. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is not seen is eternal. Again, do we believe that? Do we really believe that there are things that are more real in another world that we can't see than what is clearly evident here? Do we believe that? Well, as Christians, that's what we're supposed to believe. So I will um, refer to a book by George MacDonald that I love, Lilith. He was C.S. Lewis's master. Brian has talked about him before. Um, MacDonald writes this very creative fantasy fiction. It is weird. Some people are really into fantasy fiction. Some people aren't. It's okay if you're not. Um, it's something that I've had to kind of push myself to read, but I'm glad I did because there was so much that was good in it. So he writes this fantasy. It's not truly allegory, but it all takes place in a world with a very loving and merciful God. So Mr. Vane, who is the protagonist of the story, he finds himself in a strange place with a talking bird who is sometimes a librarian. It kind of like depends on which way you're looking. Sometimes he's a librarian, sometimes he's a talking bird. He then finds in this particular scene that he hasn't left his house. He's in the same place, but he's in a different dimension. And so he looks over at his piano there in the house and it's sort of like the piano leg turns into a, a rose bush. I told you this was a weird book. <laughs> the piano leg is sometimes a rose bush and the scent of the roses comes out in the music played on the piano. And so he's like stuck in between these two worlds and it's, it's, a, it's a representation of the world that we see and the world that really is. And I loved this passage, I love this explanation because it makes me think, could heaven be right here right now, but in a different dimension. Now we just can't see it. And I am very comforted by the idea of a healed earth coexisting with this one, but currently inaccessible, except for just glimpses that we get from time to time. It's a world without pollution, without harmful climate change caused by greedy humans. It's a world without war, Come, Lord Jesus. It's a world without guns. It's a world without hunger and poverty. It's a world without disease. And it's a world without death. How many of you can get excited about that? <laughs> the Bible talks about heaven repeatedly, repeatedly. Jesus talked about heaven. Modern people talk about the afterlife. Heaven is not an afterthought. Heaven is not a consolation prize. Oh, you poor dear, you had to die. I'm sorry, we'll give you heaven, which is the consolation prize. That's not what it is. Heaven is not an addendum 
to the main thing. It's like, it's like this is not the main thing. And then heaven, the consolation prize. So we talk about the afterlife. What if we talked about this? What if we called this existence the before life? Think about it. Think about how that just changes everything. It changes your perspective. Oh, I'm living in the before life, and later I'm going to go to the real life, the true life, the life that Jesus promised, the life that we were created to live. Now, I want to live this life fully, and the best way I can have my best experience in the next life is just to pour everything into living this life and serving people and loving people and, and, and growing and becoming all that God created me to be. But I don't get to the end and say, oh, shucks, it's over, because it's not over. My life is not going to end. I am going to live with Jesus forever. I will amen myself. Amen. Amen. Okay, going back to the two biblical texts that I use, the stories of Jacob and Elijah, we wonder, what else are these stories trying to tell us? What do Jacob and the servant of Elisha have in common? Well, they are both desperate. They are needy. They are scared. And Thank God the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. That's a good one to memorize. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. So I want to tell a story that happened about 10 years ago. I had an experience I will never forget. I got a phone call that a longtime church member had been in a terrible, terrible car accident. A car had pulled directly in front of her on the highway. That driver had been killed, and it had taken some time to extricate Valerie, my friend, from the crushed vehicle. She had broken all her extremities. Think about it. Two broken legs, two broken arms. She'd been to surgery for internal bleeding, and she was on life support. Not a good report. Not something I wanted to hear. The news made me sick at heart. I mean, I just was sick. This is my friend who I loved. I needed to go to the hospital, but I dreaded it. But of course I went. What was I expecting? I expected her to be sedated, unresponsive, maybe brain dead, waiting to be taken off the machines. I expected to pray over her, pray with any family that might be there, and leave. I did not expect what happened. Well, Valerie was alone in her ICU room, and she made immediate eye contact with me as I approached her bed, and she smiled as well as she could with a tube down her throat and a machine breathing for her. She acted happy to see me. She didn't stop smiling the whole time I was there. I told her how sorry I was. I tried to say some encouraging words, which I soon saw were completely unnecessary. 
as I was the only one in the room who needed cheering up. (laughs) I had walked sadly into a sick room, and I had been hit by a wave of joy. When I told her that God was with her, she nodded emphatically, like, I know, I know. She wanted so badly to talk, but of course she couldn't. At one point, she waved her splinted hands expressively, and I had to tell her, you need to stop because both your arms are broken and they haven't been set yet. (laughs) And then I prayed with her, and I left, mystified, This visit hadn't gone anything like what I had expected. I had gone dutifully to try to minister, and I had been ministered to. I left saying, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. My heart was deeply touched. It was an unforgettable experience for which I'm deeply grateful. Well, Valerie did not die. A couple of days later, she came off the ventilator, and I visited again, and she was finally able to tell me what had happened. The car pulled in front of her, and there was no avoiding it. All she could do was yell, Here I come, Jesus. I just thought that was beautiful. Here I come, Jesus. I would have yelled, like, Help me, Jesus, (laughs) you know? But just this, she just has such an intimacy with Jesus that, She told him she was coming. She fully expected to be dead and with the Lord, and she was shocked after the wreck to find out she wasn't. Instead of going to Jesus, Jesus came to her. She said she never lost consciousness and that she had a sense of being wrapped in Jesus' arms and being held, and that it was the most beautiful thing that had ever happened to her. She is forever marked by that moment, and so am I. Well, Valerie had a long, difficult recovery. After a few weeks in the hospital, she had to go to a nursing home because she couldn't do anything for herself. She couldn't use her arms or her legs for anything. She was as helpless as a newborn. She told me she'd prayed for patience and that this was the Lord's answer. Eventually, she did recover, although she still suffers from rheumatoid arthritis, has had to have two knee replacements. And yet, 10 years later, she says a day never goes by without remembering that experience in God, which has become a defining moment in her life, and that it was worth all the pain. She found a pearl of great price. Valerie, why don't you stand up and wave at the people. Let them know who you are. Amen. She's a very humble sister in the Lord and I love her. But this idea of a terrible thing becoming the most beautiful experience in her life? Well, this is a mystery. This is God redeeming all things. It's a glimpse of apocatastasis, the restoration of all things spoken of in Acts 3.21. It's Julian's all shall be well. 
It's a holy mystery. Now, Gerald May is a favorite devotional writer of mine. He's written many books. This one is on the dark night of the soul. And I'm going to read a few words from the intro. Interestingly, okay, the dark night of the soul is a, is a term that was coined by John of the Cross, who Jacob preached on a couple months ago. And um, John of the Cross was mentored by Teresa of Avila. And that is where I first read that quote that is on the bookmark that you got today. And so it's appropriate that I am using this, rereading it. This is a great little book that is an intro to their lives and how they were intertwined and their spiritual teachings. Gerald May's Dark Night of the Soul. But I'm just going to read actually the second paragraph of the intro to this book. This is Gerald May talking. He says, at the outset, I must confess that I am no longer very good at telling the difference between good things happening to me and bad things. Of course, there are many events in human history that can only be labeled as evil, but from the standpoint of inner individual experience, the distinction has become blurred for me. Some things start out looking great but wind up terribly, while other things seem bad in the beginning, but turn out to be blessings in disguise. I was diagnosed with cancer in 1995, which I thought was a bad thing. But the experience brought me closer to God and to my loved ones than I'd ever been, and that was wonderfully good. The chemotherapy was awful, but it resulted in a cure, a complete cure, which I decided was good. I later found out it may have caused the heart disease that now has me waiting for a heart transplant. <laughs> At some point, I gave up trying to decide what's ultimately good or bad. I truly do not know. And I think that's a place of wisdom. You know, as we experience life, I mean, life happens. Good things, bad things, things. What's important is how we respond to them. Amen. Respond to him in faith. So, you know, most of you know that I broke my wrist in May, this one right here, and it's recovering well, and though it is no comparison at all to breaking all four extremities, I experienced in it something mystical, beautiful, and profound to the extent that I call my broken wrist a gift of sorts. I have spent hours pondering the experience. I experienced an awareness of angelic presence, peace, and deep joy. Not what you expect when you have a broken bone. I've had people say, oh, my worst nightmare is to have something bad happen in a foreign country. I'm like, yeah, it wasn't a nightmare. It turned out to be kind of a gift. <laughs> But um, I had a strong sense, a very strong sense of being well cared for that caused profound gratitude. So I was leading a women's group in the Holy Land in May. We were in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. We had just told our group of women, take, take 30 minutes, go explore on your own. The church was very crowded. I was right in front of the tomb of Jesus, and I was staring up at this 
beautiful, beautiful dome that's over this tomb and walking at the same time. Not recommended. I didn't realize there was a step, and I just walked sideways off the side, and, and I was flying through the air, and I was thinking, oh, this is going to be embarrassing. <laughs> but when I hit the ground, all the embarrassment just like disappeared because it hurt so bad. I mean, it really hurt. I hit my left knee first, my right knee second, and then my wrist third. And I, when, I, when it hit, like I didn't know which one hit the worst. Well, there were immediately two men at my side and, and like kind of grabbed my shoulders to pick me up. And I, and I said, hold on, hold on, I need a minute. Just give me a minute. And they gave me a minute and I said, okay, okay, help me up. And I felt them lift me up and I was on my feet, and one of them said, I heard them say, what can we do for you now? And I said, I, I need you to get me a, to a place to sit down. And they led me over to a place to sit down and disappeared. And I never saw them again. Later, as I pondered, I realized I never saw them at all. I felt them. I heard them, I spoke to them, but I never saw them. Could they have been angels? Could they have been angels? Well, they were certainly, if they weren't angel angels, they were human angels. They had been sent by God to help me, and, and, and they did help me. And they got me to a place to sit down, and I sat down beside a nun who was, um, you know, in black from head to toe, and as I sat down beside that nun, she spoke a few words to me. She didn't speak really good English, but she spoke a few just kind words, just letting me know she cared. But what I felt was this prayer, just like I was engulfed in prayer, like there was prayer emanating from her body. And I just felt it and received it and, and soaked it up. And it was so beautiful. I, I mean, I felt this deep love for her. And it's somehow related to the communion of saints, which every time we recite the Apostles' Creed, we, we say we believe in the communion of saints, and I think we don't talk about it enough, and we don't even really realize what it is, but it's this sense of just all being connected, all being connected, all even down through the ages. And um, it was a, a real miracle a couple of days later when I got to see her again. I mean, that I just ran into her again and was able to fellowship with her. I think I have a picture of her and me, and, and that's, my, that's my special nun that God sent, who, she's my angel nun. So I had angels, angels, angels. And then, you know, I knew that I needed some help, and so I sent a text to my sister Donna, who's right there on the second row, and she was there in 20 seconds, and she looked at me, I mean, her, she just looked at me, she says, yep, that's broke. <laughs> And she whipped off her scarf and she made a um, tourniquet, not a tourniquet, but a, a, not a sling, she made a co compression bandage. And then she grabbed my backpack and she said, I can turn that into a sling. And then she got me to the hospital. It's like, she was an angel too. She may not have known it. But I just, I got to the hospital. It was a, it was a Palestinian hospital. 
in East Jerusalem, and I got the best care. And I just, I had this beautiful sense of being so well cared for, that, that, that God in heaven was orchestrating everything. And, uh, you know, my wrist is pretty well healed. Um, most of my function is back, and I hope that I'll get it all. But if I don't, it's okay. It was worth it. That is an experience that I treasure. And so these mystical divine encounters happen to the people that are written about in the scriptures, but they're to happen to us too. Um, I'll tell a couple more real quickly. Um, Isaiah 6.1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, he's, he's referring to something that happened long ago, but he had an experience where he saw God. And it's something that he recalls and meditates upon and reflects on and he ponders. You know that scripture, how Mary took all these things and pondered them in her heart. And we are to do that. These experiences that we have in God, we're to hold on to them and ponder them and, and go deeper. And sometimes if you'll just sit with something, you'll see and understand things that you didn't see and understand before. Paul on the Damascus Road, when he had that experience, who are you, Lord? You know that he thought about that for the rest of his life. He meditated upon it. Peter, how he was miraculously released from prison, an angel struck him in the side to wake him up. Kind of a funny story, but it was an angel who came to his deliverance. So these experiences are all part of growing into the fullness of our humanity, growing into maturity. They don't happen every day. Oh, no, they don't. But they are normative. They will happen when you least expect them. They are foreshadowing of the life that we are longing for, the marriage of heaven and earth. They're just glimpses. We don't make them happen. But we can put ourselves into positions for them to happen. How do we do that? Well, I'll say, number one, be in church. Church was the great idea that Jesus had to build his body, to build his church. So if we will come to church and engage in worship, remember, we are not consumers. We are worshipers. We're not here to see the show. We are here to participate, to enter in. And worship opens our hearts like nothing else to encounters with God. Secondly, spending quiet time in prayer and contemplation. Spending time in silence so that God is able to speak to us. Turn off the noise. The TV doesn't need to be on. 24-7. Um, spend time in scripture. Take long walks. Lectio Divina. Various spiritual practices. Learning uh, the, the things that are imparted at prayer school. Thirdly, I'll say, remember, we don't seek experiences. We seek God. And we welcome the experiences with God. Live in gratitude for what we have and have a spirit of expectation for more. Amen. Amen. 
And now, let's prepare to come to the table of the Lord. This is the high point of the service. This is where we come with hearts that are as wide open as we've been able to get them open. And we come to receive. And I believe that everything that you need today is inherent in the body and blood of Christ. And as you come and receive today, believe to receive exactly what you need. God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Amen. Now this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. For it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. Amen. The body of Christ broken for you. And the blood of Christ shed for you.